Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you don't have a clear curriculum for your classroom, it is so overwhelming to try to put that together yourself. Spending hours on Pinterest and Google, pulling worksheets and pulling pieces of curriculum together to make something that works for your classroom. That's why we created the Autism Helper Curriculum and now offer Curriculum Access. Curriculum Access gets you access to all levels and all subjects of the highly differentiated evidence-based Autism Helper Curriculum. You can have students working on letter identification and working on parts of speech at the same time in our easy-to-use curriculum. We currently have hundreds of teachers using Curriculum Access from all over the world with consistently rave reviews. I want you to join that group of teachers. Now is the time to ask your administrators for curriculum access. We have an email template ready to go so you can ask them to set up a demo. Your administrators can jump on a live call with our team members to see everything that's included in the Autism Helper curriculum access. Next year, let's reduce the overwhelm. Let's start the year out with a path and a plan and resources to meet all the diverse needs of your students. Let's make next year the year of curriculum access. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Amanda Kelly, also known as Behavior Babe. Amanda's website, BehaviorBabe.com, is a great resource for learning about applied behavior analysis in a user-friendly way. Amanda is a wealth of knowledge. She is an expert at dissemination and is super passionate about public policy. So definitely check out her website if you've never been there. I was really excited to chat with Amanda because she is from an education background, same as me. So I love getting to talk to behavior analysts that can combine that school environment with behavior analytic principles. And in our chat today, we talk about different ways to utilize ABA within the classroom. Amanda's strategies are simple, yet super effective and valuable. And she explains common classroom how common classroom routines can be tweaked a little bit to kind of get the more most bang for your buck. So let's jump right in. Hi, Dr. Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Hi, Sasha. Thanks for having me. I love how passionate you are about dissemination of applied behavior analysis. It's so admirable. So I know Everyone's going to learn a lot from you because you explain things in a super user-friendly way, which I am all about. (laughs) Thanks. Um, And I love that you have an education background. You know, many of my listeners are teachers. Could you talk a little bit about what brought you to the ABA world? Yeah, absolutely. So I always knew that I wanted to be a teacher. When I was like 
eight years old, nine years old, I would run school. Um, I grew up as an army brat, so we were living in different army bases and locations. And my parents would laugh that I would have older neighbors come over and I would like give them assignments and we would have recess. And I mean, I think it was only probably an hour or two because we always (laughs) also like went to school. But I mean, I just, I love learning myself. I really enjoy going to school for the majority of my school years. And um, I decided to pursue elementary education uh, for my bachelor's. And I went to school at Shepherd University in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And it was during that time that I found a part-time job. It was a flyer in the hallway of our education um, department wing and it was, it said, come help our child. He has autism. He's two. And we're going to do this thing called ABA um, by this guy, Lovas. I didn't even know <laughs> that's how you said it. And I went to the director of my education department and I said, hey, you know, can you explain to me? Like, I've never heard what autism is. This was the late 90s, early 2000s. I had, I just, I didn't know. Um I didn't know what applied behavior analysis was. And I didn't realize that most people didn't know. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm so new. Teach me more. I have this third. <laughs> and she kind of just, you know, I felt gave a really dismissive answer. And so I decided to go meet the family myself and see what it was all about. And, you know, I thought it would be a great learning experience. And I worked with him for, um, well, I just, I kind of felt like, we all kind of worked together, um, became um, part of each other's, you know, foundational experiences. And when I graduated with my um, bachelor's in elementary education, I thought, you know, being a second grade teacher is going to be boring compared to the challenges <laughs> that I just faced. And <laughs> I enjoyed the progress. And so it was through experiencing, you know, a couple of years of in-home, imperfect, you know, you know, probably early version ABA. Um, and this child ended up entering kindergarten a little bit older than the rest of his peers, but he went indistinguishable from his peers. And that's just not everyone's outcome, of course, but imagine that being the first child you work with. So for me, that just, I decided that when I graduated, it was uh, the winter and I didn't, I didn't want to be a substitute teacher in the winter in West Virginia. That didn't appeal to me. Um, <laughs> and so I used dial-up internet to look up, you know, one of two jobs in the United States. And um, my path led me to Massachusetts. And so I continued to have a love and a passion for education and for teaching. I spent several years in student teaching in public school classrooms, having special education classrooms myself. Um, I know the struggle of like needing to go to the bathroom, but also (laughs) like follow IEP objectives and take data and cover people's breaks. And so I feel that that experience um, helped me a lot when I became a consultant, a behavior analyst, and was working also in the public schools a large portion of my time. So um, when I came to Hawaii, uh, which was, you know, I fast forwarded many decades, sorry, (laughs) like two decades later. From my uh, graduation of my bachelor's, but about a, about 10 years, 11 years after um, living in Massachusetts, I came to Hawaii and I was like, hey, let's, let's continue that pursuit of um, trying to improve our public educational school 
systems and options for children with autism and everyone. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that experience in the classroom is so valuable and I I do consulting in classrooms as well and you know something overwhelmingly that I hear from a lot of teachers is Sometimes once in a while they got, you know, that anti-ABA vibe going on, which I'm on always a mission, mission to prove wrong, any misconceptions. But once you get to the root of it, it's that they've had, you know, unfortunately one bad apple experience with possibly a BCBA that didn't get the contingencies at play in a public school classroom. Like you said, the bathroom breaks and um, the IEPs and the staff support and all that. And if you're used to more of a clinical or in-home setting, it's I think sometimes people have a hard time generalizing how these strategies can work, which they still can in the public school. Yeah, I think, you know, I I think we struggle sometimes with applying behavioral principles to everything we do. And oftentimes as consultants, it's it's easy, it's understandable to be frustrated at times. Teachers too, parents too, our our learners as well. I mean, administrators too, the system, all of it. But when we kind of really break it down systematically and we look at it, it's something about the environment. Um, and you just mm-hmm. mentioned potentially there's a you know history of past you know experiences that weren't positive. But I think it goes beyond just having had a bad apple or not the right consultant or the right fit. As an educator myself, you know you're constantly being told to do. Um, everything that's, you know, on a teacher's to-do list, like educating your students and making sure they're healthy and safe, but then also having your IEP meetings and also staff schedules and the social emotional relationships of your colleagues and coordinating team meetings. And it it's, it's just that you have those added pressures. And then sometimes they might have a history of people just coming in and either telling them to do more things or the impression that someone's going to say you're doing something wrong. And I think it comes down to sort of a lack of, of um, teachers are worried about a lack of ownership of their classroom. And I think it's really important that we walk into a situation remembering that this is their environment. And anytime that anyone steps foot in a classroom, uh, they should be there to help and to make the classroom flow better. And so I, I think that it comes down to we don't get a lot of education in that in a teacher prep program. You know, I didn't in my undergraduate program get a lot of training in like delegating staff. I, I don't think <laughs> we even focused heavily on special education, if I'm being honest. You know, I mean, maybe a class or a couple books, but the real life experience has been so different. So I do agree that people who have some experiences in those settings are better able to see kind of the bigger picture for teachers. But I think even without any experience or, or when I first stepped in and to kind of even a consulting role, you know, the best thing to, to do is to start by observing our environment. And, and I think that um, that's something that kind of comes naturally to many behavior analysts. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I, I make a similar point, like you said, on when you're walking into someone's classroom you know, it's their space. Like I, I tell, you know, consultants or teachers a lot or, you know, administrators, this, it's like their home, like teachers spend a lot of their own money and they spend a lot of their, their time in their classroom. So it's like you're stepping into their house and it's okay to be, if, you know, at first they're a little protective or defensive, but, you know, like you mentioned, really emphasizing that we're all on the same team and we're here to help and kind of do this together. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What are some kind of, you know, kind of going on, you know, talking about ABA in schools, what are some, you know, strategies or kind of go-to things that after obviously observing and all that, that you're, you know, frequently discussing with teachers or sharing or working on with different teachers? I know that's like a super broad question, so you can take it any direction you want. Well, I think the first thing is to establish that relationship, you know, Um, people are going to care about what you say when they know that you care about them. And so we need to remember rapport building, pairing, um, all of those kind of aspects and the behavioral principles. But when I'm talking with teachers, things that I, like if I, I kind of start my consultations usually with, if I had a magic wand or a million dollars, what could I change right now that would make your life easier, better, um, more supported, help your classroom flow, like what would it be? And I start with an ideal. Tell me what's ideal. And I do the similar thing when I'm consulting with parents as well. So I think a lot of this this advice can kind of generalize in that way. Um, but it's like start with what is most important to them. Now, that doesn't mean I always tackle what's the most important thing. Sometimes it's something well out of my ability or I need to establish more stronger relationships with administration to help advocate or something like that. But then I will also ask like, okay, now once we had that thing out of the way, what would be the the next two things that you would want to tackle? And that gives me a sense of something that if if every day they weren't trying to put out a big fire, these would be the things that are most important to them. And it really speaks to the social significance and picking, you know, behaviors to target or skills to build that are relevant to the individual. And in this case, that would be the teacher in the classroom. And so when I go into a classroom or trends that I've seen over the years across different states and settings, sometimes it's really starting basically like organizing your materials. Now, Many teachers know that, and they have a great organizational system in the beginning of the school year in August or September, but they might need help with maintaining that organizational system or in teaching students how to respect or to understand the rules of their organizational system. Um, I recently went into a classroom on the Big Island, and a teacher was setting up for the school year, and she was putting all of the materials like out of reach of the children. And I was asking her why she was making that decision. And she said, well, um, I'm afraid that they're going to break the materials or that they're going to get misused or they're going to get lost. Now, she has a history with those students, and I think she knows very well that those are really probable um, outcomes. And so I respect the fact that she has that fear or concern. Um, But I then challenged her to kind of think about what a classroom kind of felt like to her when she was going to school or what you would want it to feel like if if you weren't worried about safety issues and you'd want access and you'd maybe a little bit out of reach so you can get language to occur um, and get, you know, those interactions. But when students know where things belong and they know what their purpose is and you, you model and teach that, 
um, that can go a long way and giving teachers back a lot of freedom with how they might want to have initially structured their classroom, but otherwise decided not to. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh, I love that. And you know, it kind of, it's going to go back to like what that first question you said, like what's the ideal thing you want? Well, I want kids to be independent and to be engaged. Well, it's hard to be independent if you can't get the stuff by yourself. So that's such a great point that something that seems so simple can really make such a big impact. Definitely. You know, and I think another thing that's really important, and we probably all know this, um, is like developing our classroom rules. So my mom recently became a first year teacher in her early 60s. Um, She went back to school, got a bachelor's in sociology, got her master's in education. And then it was hilarious because she called me one day and she said, Amanda, do you know how hard it is to get an entire classroom of seven-year-olds to do something? (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, yes, mom, what do you think my whole life? Um, so it was this really nice kind of uh, connection we had. But I went and I visited her classroom um, last year in the fall, and I spent a couple hours in there. And one of the things that I noticed was her classroom rules. So teachers have rules. Um, parents have rules. We all have rules. There's societal rules. Students have expectations. Sometimes they're creating their own rules for better and for worse. Um, But what I noticed was that it was a few months into the school year and there were a couple of rules on her sheet that were written very, you know, in the uniform handwriting and very um, the same color, you know, kind of no slant to them. And then you could see that other rules had been added, I think, later. Um, Like, and I make make this joke with her now that like we should have just gotten a scroll and continued them on because (laughs) because the rules themselves, you know, you want to make sure that students understand them, that they're a living, breathing document, that they are creating them with you, but also that they that they truly understand them. And when I say that they understand them, I mean that we are interactively modeling them for students. So we might say something or a a classroom might come up with a rule that says like respect uh, classroom property. Now a behavior analyst might want to tease that apart and say, what does respect look like? And that's fine too. But again, we realize we want rules that people understand what they mean and that we're on the same page with them. Relative agreement, even if it's with our five-year-old students. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what I might mean by respecting materials is this is what you do with the scissors when you're done. This is where you put the crayons um, when we're all ready to clean up or something like that. And by interactively modeling, um, the idea behind that is you show a student what it is you want them to do very explicitly. And you can do this with the entire classroom. Often that's the recommendation, depending on your class and your age and your students. And have students model, you know, what does it look like to put away the scissors? Okay, we're going to put our finger on the sharp part or on the tip and we're going to walk with them face down and then we're going to put them over here on this shelf. Um, I think that too often in my own experiences as well, we assume that there's an understanding of behavioral expectations, but we don't make that same assumption when we're teaching math equations or when we're teaching, you know, rules of the English language and grammar. So I think if we take that similar approach as teachers that we all have that students are our learners and can be sponges who can be, you know, absorb information that we should also be giving them the information about how we expect them to behave 
and what those rules mean when they come to life. Yes. And like approach teaching those skills, like with the same rigor as academics, like you mentioned. Yeah, definitely. And I think some of that comes down to teachers not knowing how to do that or not being given the time or the freedom or the power or the voice. I mean, there's so many reasons um, why that happens. You might have students added to your classroom later that completely change the dynamic and bring to life the reason or, or, or the need for a new rule. That's okay. Um, but in my experiences, it really works great when we're revisiting them, when we're talking about them, when we're reconnecting our lessons to them, when students can not just like recite them, but really can replay them and role model, you know, be a role model or role play them for that incoming student, for example. Um, I also think, you know, we tend to use a lot of words. Um, I'm a pretty verbose person in my daily life. <laughs> I like to talk a ton. Um, but when we're trying to just communicate a simple point, there are all sorts of reasons why it's helpful to use, you know, three to five words. Um, you know, short attention spans or limited vocabulary or um, difficulty processing the salient part of the sentence or, you know, being frustrated and not wanting to hear a bunch of words at you in the moment versus something like take five. Um, so I think it's also important. And these, I think, are incredibly um, simplified uh, expectations or things that teachers probably, you know, I mean, I think a lot of teachers know how to do this really well. But when I find um, sometimes just slight refinements to these practices, they see a big, big change in their classroom. And one of the biggest changes, um, which is a question you asked me earlier, was getting teachers to stop asking questions when they don't mean to ask a question. Yes. I talk about this all the time. I love that you said this. Go on. Sorry. Oh, absolutely. And I love that you're chiming in because and nodding your head. And I'm sure people who listen will nod their head as well, right? I think that it comes from a fear of what, not wanting to sound too directive to students. So like, go get your papers or put them on the table. And I think that really comes down to our tone. So if mm -hmm. I say something like, everybody stand up, push in your chairs, and let's line up. That doesn't sound very authoritative, um, but it is directive. It's not yeah. a question. It's not like, can you line up? Are you ready to go to computer? Um, which those times, uh, there are times where it's completely appropriate to ask the question. You know, is everybody done? Do you need another five minutes? That's a genuine mm -hmm. inquiry of your class. Um, but I think it really uh, feels sometimes abrupt for people to feel, you know, to say to a student or to say to a classroom, you know, do this, do that, stand up. And so it often comes from a place of trying to sound kind and compassionate but it can actually be translated as being very confusing to students. Yes. Yeah. I was in a classroom this spring and I, I, I was observing. So it was like, I, I almost laughed out loud, but it was obviously I didn't. But the teacher was like, hey, bud, do you want to come over and take your math test now? And he was like, nope. <laughs> I was like, well, that was a pretty correct. I mean, that's what I was thinking too. No, I don't want to take my math test now. Um and the teacher set herself up for that, unfortunately. <laughs> In those situations, I tell teachers and parents, like, it's going to happen. I will tell you not to ask a question or I'll make the recommendation 
And then I will model asking a question. And I'm like, okay, wait a second. Let me know. <laughs> um, so modeling imperfections is a really, you know, is a really good, healthy thing to see. Um, of course, we want to model the things that we want people to do, but to be human is going to probably improve your relationships with other humans who are also, you know, afraid of failure and who can make mistakes. Um, but I, the saving grace that I give is if you say something like that, you can say now or in one minute. So hey, <laughs> come over and do that math test now or in one more minute. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice little add-on. <laughs> you know, my worry with the like the questions that aren't really questions is that it's teaching our kids that their no doesn't have meaning because when they say no and we're like, well, actually, too bad, you have to take your math test now. It's it's devaluing that no, and you know, we serve a population that can potentially be taken advantage of, and I. I do, you know, always want my kids or students or clients to learn that like when they, there's going to be times when they're going to have to self-advocate and say no. And I want them to know that like they can stand by that. No, that like they that I don't want them to be taken advantage of. That's kind of my always my concern there, like long term on that. Yeah, you raise a really important point that's very, I think, uh, critical for us to consider um, when we often are talking about, you know, individuals who don't want to follow instructions, we'll see a lot of emphasis on teaching compliance. And what that means is following instructions. And I think with that, we also need to teach the discrimination of when to not follow an instruction. Or, And that's one of those examples would be when you're provided with a choice. Another example would be when it's something that's like, your body is private and no, nobody can touch it. You know, like mm -hmm. there is, I think, the need or, of course, following instructions. Yes, absolutely. That's how we um, follow our day, get our bills paid, go to work, uh, get along <laughs> with our spouses or significant others. Yes. But we also need that voice of self-advocacy. And I agree with you that that might be an unintended like collateral byproduct of not, not accepting the no's or asking questions that aren't questions. I don't think it's the intention. And I'm not, and oh, I don't yeah. think you're implying that either. Yeah. Um, but when I'm consulting with teachers, if I need to make a statement like that, I'll be very clear to say, like, I know this isn't your intention, um, but think about if somebody was asking you a question, you said no, and the no was not honored, you know, repeatedly, that would communicate something to you different, right, than what you're trying to communicate to your learner. So it does help, I think, to also have people um, put themselves in the in the other on the other side of it in the shoes of the other person as much as possible um and then that's relatively easy to do with behavior um because we're all humans and we all have you know, <laughs> pretty shared experiences and emotions so it can be helpful i think a that lot of these strategies that you've been talking about and even like in your role as a consultant i think can be utilized you know by a teacher when she's you know training her staff too um you know like putting you know using that kind of perspective taking activity and showing those imperfections. Um, and, you know, a lot of teachers have paraprofessionals that they're working with. What other strategies or advice do you give for teachers on kind of getting their whole team on board with some of these concepts like modeling and using less language and things like that? So some strategies for teachers is to identify what your 
staff are really great at and what they're passionate about doing. Not everyone is going to be really good at ignoring a child who is saying something funny, right? If, if the protocol is to kind of withhold attention for that, there are staff who are just going to laugh and respond. And we can work on training and additional training, but sometimes the best thing to do is to look at who's a good fit where doing what. For example, I had one um, a paraprofessional in a classroom who was um, always providing dense amounts of attention to children because she was really good at it, honestly. Um, you know, they enjoyed her attention. So whenever there was a moment of upset in the classroom, even if it was the student she was working with um, in general, we would have her be the one to, um, you know, pay attention to the other students or if this other students needed to leave the room for safety reasons, you know, have her go with them because she was really great at providing that dense amounts of, you know, kind and compassionate attention. Then there were times where we needed her to like withhold attention. And of course we could spend time training, but then you're not spending all of your time, like putting out a fire when you can kind of delegate first. Um, getting people on board is involving them. There's not a lot of time for planning with our paraprofessionals. I understand that. I've experienced that. I would sometimes get real creative when we were at specials or when there would be other specialists in the room or via email or Google Drive, of course, maintaining, um, not putting anything that's private uh, in a place where it doesn't belong online, um, but getting their input, asking them what they're seeing, having them fill out ABC data. All of that can be really helpful and then taking that input and considering it when developing, you know, um, academic protocols or treatment plans or reinforcement systems. And I think in order to do that, we're going to need to know a bit about our staff. So, um, you know, again, it's back to pairing and um, building a rapport. So some of the things that we talk about here really are almost like a task analysis for interactions um, and <laughs> trying to get to a place where people want to hear what you have to say. And that's going to be done by, by wanting to hear what they have to say too. Yes. Oh my gosh. That is such great advice. And you, that, that rapport piece, I feel like is unintentionally, you know, rushed over or forgotten about just especially if it's a new staff member or a new teacher in the start of the year because that to-do list gets so long that you're like hey cool nice to meet you see you on Tuesday when we get started and you know it has to be this continuous thing that is all year and like I I ask teachers a lot I'm like hey what's the name of your paraprofessional's daughter and you know where do you know where they go to church and do you know her husband's name because you should you should know those things if you're spending all day with them. Yeah, you know, and I think the other thing is, too, is like, whenever you can try to show each other what you can do for each other, um, and some of that is listening, some of that's knowing about each other's, you know, kind of just personal info or asking how someone's weekend was. But also, if you see that someone needs a break or a staff switch, offer it. As a mm -hmm. teacher, I was always willing to put myself in any situation I was asking my paraprofessionals to be in. That doesn't mean that I was always doing their roles or their duties. You know, I also had additional duties as a classroom teacher, but it means that I wouldn't ask them to do something I wasn't willing to do myself. And they knew that about me. And I think that really allowed me to get, um, you know, they went above and beyond without, without asking sometimes. And I think that um, that can be done with 
with people who have a varying, you know, age range in the classroom as well can be really hard if you're working with, you know, somebody who might be, you might be in a position to be their supervisor, but they might have more experience than you in a classroom, right? Um, So it's, it's identifying that, valuing that, and um, trying to capitalize off of, of everybody's strengths collectively for the classroom. Yes, that's such great advice. You know, and like you had mentioned, so many of these things seem simple and obvious, but it's it's the little tweaks that can really make a big impact. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is very in line with being a teacher and a behavior analyst is look at the data. You know, are you feeling fatigued? Is your class, you know, following instructions? Are you able to have them uh, repeat what you need them to do? Are you feeling like you're spinning your wheels and that you're constantly, you know, like a broken record? Uh, I think people still understand that uh, comparison, that analogy. Um, (laughs) But if so, then something needs to change, right? And it's not the learner's fault. It's the environment. And so what about the environment is not conducive to the outcomes that we're trying to achieve? And then if we can look and see what we can impact, you know, sometimes there are things beyond our impact. When I had my own classroom as a special education teacher, for example, um, I needed additional paraprofessional or, or assistance in my classroom. I had significant levels of challenging behavior, and I felt that we needed an additional person. Well, that's hard to you know request when it's not in the budget or they haven't allocated it. But what I did um, and what the director did was she sent um, somebody into our classroom if there was ever a cancellation or sickness or there was just an extra staff available. And I graphed the difference in the students responding and the number of programs we could run and the, the rate of progress. And I looked at the days where we had somebody there and the days that we didn't. And the data was pretty compelling. And um, I feel really fortunate. It wasn't overnight, but she was really receptive to that data. And we ultimately did get somebody in our classroom. Um, but I think even when you can't have that exact outcome, you can look around and see, you know what, when everybody's coming in from recess, it's a really hard time to start the reading or the spelling test. So maybe we're going to do 10 minutes of like music and drawing, and then we'll jump into the next lesson. So there are modifications that we do have the power to make in our own classrooms. Yes. Oh, thank you, Amanda, so much. Can you tell everyone really quick about your website and your podcast and where they can learn more from you? Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity, Sasha. I'm real excited to be on your podcast as well. So my podcast is called Behavior Babe, uh, all one word, uh, capital B in the beginning, and the rest is all lowercase. Um, The website's behaviorbabe.com. You can find Behavior Babe on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And if anyone's ever interested in reaching out, uh, my email is behaviorbabe at yahoo.com. Great. Well, thank you so much. This was very informational, but also actionable too. Things that, you know, you can go in and kind of do right away. So thank you for sharing with us. Thanks for having me today, Sasha. If you would have told me a few years ago that my favorite part of my job is getting up in front of sometimes a few hundred people and giving a presentation on data or behavior academics, I would have thought you were crazy. I did not always like public speaking. Actually, to be totally honest, public speaking was something I used to be pretty afraid of. But now it's literally my favorite part of my job. 
I love being in a room of my people, of the special ed world, teachers and parents and clinicians, and everyone that's on the front lines that's working so hard for our students to give them the best opportunities and the best classroom experience. I love being in a room of everyone that understands how hard this job can be, but also how amazing it is and how important those little victories are on a daily basis. When I do a PD, my goal is to bring value. I wanna bring action items, ideas and strategies that you can do tomorrow in your classroom. I have sat through too many professional developments that either didn't apply to me or were too hypothetical and philosophical. And my special ed heart always wanted to know, what do I do next? What do I do tomorrow? If you are interested in learning more about how I can come to your school to do a professional development, please visit theautismhelper.com backslash speaking. There's a contact form as well as a lot of information about all of the different sessions I give. I'm happy to answer any questions and work with your school district. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.